Today we have one of the most interesting gospel stories about Jesus and one of the most misunderstood. It was grossly misunderstood by the crowds watching Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and it is equally misunderstood by us modern readers of the story. And to be honest, I probably greatly misunderstand it as well. So take what I say this morning and examine it, test it, and then still take it with a grain of salt. Let me first lay out a quick summary of the story. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, permitting, if not encouraging, the crowd's shouts of Hosanna. The people want to make Jesus into a political king, but Jesus subtly refuses by riding a humble donkey, showing that he was a servant to the poor, not a mighty king. Then in a matter of a few days, the same crowd turns against him and tries to crucify him because he's not going to rescue them from Rome after all. And we find out after his trial, crucifixion, and resurrection that what he is after is a heavenly kingship, not an earthly one. And we are invited to receive Jesus as our spiritual savior and worship him with a pure heart. Now, does that basic summary sound familiar to you? Now, let me explain why we need to take virtually every element of that summary and rethink it. Because we have them all wrong. Mostly, if not entirely. Let's start at the beginning. Why a donkey and not a white horse? I didn't go back to my old sermons to confirm, but I'm almost positive I've preached some sermons that portrayed the donkey as a humble animal of the working class, the farmer, and that when Jesus chose a donkey, a lowly working animal, riding atop it with his feet almost dragging the ground, he was rejecting the effort to make him an earthly king. He was presenting himself not as a king, but as a servant of the poor. All sounds good, but it's unquestionably bad biblical interpretation. Because we have extensive evidence, both in the Bible and in other literature and archaeology, that donkeys were highly regarded in the ancient Near East. Maybe we've been led astray by Eeyore, the donkey in Winnie the Pooh who hangs his head and talks in a low voice as if he's not worth much. Today, for some reason, we associate donkeys with being dumb or submissive or timid. Not so in the time and culture of Jesus. Because of their ability to provide reliable transportation for long distances, donkeys were sometimes even given semi-divine status. And they were often associated with royalty. Jesus was by far not the only king to have ridden on one. As a matter of fact, 
It was customary when a king returned to his city after victory in battle, the steed of choice for the victory parade was a donkey. So it is simply wrong to suggest that Jesus was rejecting earthly kingship by choosing a humble donkey. It would be more accurate to say that Jesus was giving a signal both to the Jews and to the Romans that he was coming in peace, not to take over with violence. Kings rode horses when leading their armies into battle. They rode donkeys when they were coming in peace. So it seems to me that what Jesus signals here is that he is coming into Jerusalem as a king, but not a king who will seize political power by force. Rather, a king who exercises his power by giving it away. He is the giving king. As the week unfolds, that message is reinforced in many ways. Jesus' power is manifest in acts of self-giving. Whether in the upper room, washing his disciples' feet, or in the garden, condemning Peter's use of violence, or in the high priest's chamber, responding with transparency and wit, without belittling his accusers, or before Pilate, sometimes silent, sometimes speaking with respect, but always true to himself. Ultimately, he gives up his own life, not as a helpless victim, but as a king, a giving king. A little reminiscent of Shel Silverstein's book, the giving tree, about the tree who gave up its apples and then its branches and its trunk for love of the boy. Jesus is the kind of king that is willing to give whatever it takes and bring life to those he loves and who are subject to his reign. In contrast to the power of the Roman Empire, whose power was expressed by acts of taking and accumulating, taking money and freedom and dignity from others and gathering it all to themselves so they could lord it over others. In contrast to the power of the religious hierarchy, whose power was likewise exerted on others by coercion in order to maintain what little power they had in the system. In contrast to all that, Jesus enters Jerusalem, the center of religious and political power in that region, and says, let me show you the nature, the true nature of royal power. The power of God that has been shared with me, I share with you. The kind of power that may not save my earthly life, but may just save the world. So yes, true enough, there is humility in Jesus' choice to ride a donkey instead of a war horse. 
But Jesus is by no means rejecting kingship. He is redefining kingship. And it's still a political kingship in the sense that this divinely ordered power of giving is meant to be lived out in human community now. It's not just for some age to come. Giving, rather than taking and accumulating, is an organizing principle for Jesus' disciples then and now, and thus it's political. It's how we are called to be formed as a people, as a community in the world, and therefore it's inherently political in the best and truest sense of that word. Okay, we've got that cleared up. Now let's consider the notion that these people shouting Hosanna are fickle, that they turn on Jesus. That the very crowd that one day was shouting the praises of Jesus later was shouting just as loudly to crucify him. I know that I've suggested that from this pulpit right here. I'm not so sure anymore. Now, I won't say that some of them didn't do an about-face. I'm sure that some did. We know that mob psychology is a real thing. It can make some people do something in the heat of the moment that they couldn't have imagined doing even days earlier. But this notion of a fickle crowd is at best a half-truth. It's not supported by direct biblical evidence and does not take into account the complexity of the power struggle that was going on in Jerusalem. I talked about this in a sermon a few weeks ago, pointing out the clear social and political differences between the rural north, Galilee and its environs, and the powerful, more urban south, Jerusalem and Judea. You know, if there's, if there's one thing that stands out as a newer, stronger impression on me in this journey through the Gospel of John, is that's the way that Jesus was received varied widely according to culture, geography, and social status. In John, there is this repeated back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem, which reveals as much about the people as it does about Jesus. In Galilee, Jesus regularly crossed religious and cultural boundaries with very little pushback. He offered healing to Gentiles and Roman officers and Jews alike, and no one mounted an objection. His popularity only grew. The crowd size grew, so much that he could hardly find a quiet spot to pray. But back in Jerusalem, among the power elite, both religious and civil powers, it didn't take much to get them upset. 
a man unable to walk for decades was healed when Jesus told him to pick up his mat and walk. The ruling class of religious folk blew a gasket over that act because Jesus told someone to carry his mat on the Sabbath. I can't even imagine something like that happening in Galilee. When Jesus returned to Galilee after his bold move to clear the temple of the animals and money changers, he was welcomed like a hero by his fellow Galileans who had heard what he did in Jerusalem. While back in Jerusalem, in smoke-filled rooms, so to speak, the elite were conspiring how to kill him. Here's the thing. During big religious festivals, Jerusalem's streets were filled with all kinds of people. Both the rural northern folks who felt that brunt of oppression and were angry at their oppressors, both Roman and religious, and were looking for someone to save them from that oppression, as well as local residents of Jerusalem, many of whom, along with the priestly class, along with scribes and Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, had found a way to thread the needle politically to stay in the good graces of Rome and keep the peace so they could maintain their religious power structure. Is it any surprise that Jesus wasn't popular among the residents of Jerusalem? Most of them probably had either had family in that religious ruling class or were neighbors to them or did business with them they were enmeshed with the power stru structures. In today's text, Jesus enters Jerusalem during one of the biggest religious festivals, Passover. People from every part of Palestine were there, filling the streets. How do we know it wasn't primarily his Galilean supporters who came out en masse and waved their palms and shouted, Hosanna, which means, save us. It would make perfect sense to me. And how do we know that the crowds shouting, crucify him, a few days later, weren't primarily residents of Jerusalem, whose resistance was stoked by the religious ruling class? who they were deeply connected to and easily influenced by. Thing is, we don't know. But I'm beginning to assume that that is the most reasonable description of what was happening. This pivotal story in John's Gospel, which appears in all four of the Gospels in much the same form, is a profound lesson to us as a people, as a community of Jesus followers. 
Who do we surround ourselves with? Who do we shoulder up next to when we want something to happen? What kind of power are we willing to wield to get the outcome we want? Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with holding positions that are politically powerful. The question is, how are we stewarding that power? It's a question we were asking last Sunday. And it continues to be asked by this text. Is it the power of the empire, the take and accumulate kind of power? Or is it the power of the kingdom of heaven that reveals itself through self-giving love? That's a question I need to ask of myself, of course. Living as I do in one of the Jerusalems of the Mennonite church and being a 60-something white male senior pastor who has been in my role long enough to have gathered a pretty good amount of knowledge and influence in the system, Am I using my power to hold on to what I have and what I want to secure my position? Or do I exercise my power and resources by giving them away to others who need them more? Am I surrounding myself with others in Jerusalem who hold power like mine? Or do I open myself to what the Spirit may be doing up in Galilee, even if I don't fully understand it or appreciate it? I think that many of us can ask the same sort of questions of ourselves. Just change the context a bit, and you can probably find yourself in that story. Are you with the crowd of outsiders shouting, Hosanna, save us, at the beginning of the week? Or are you with the crowd of insiders protecting the status quo and shouting, crucify, at the end of the week? I imagine that we can find ourselves in both places at certain times. I think we are the ones who need to be humbled by this story of Jesus. So as we each consider where we find ourselves in this story, let's all join in calling on God's mercy and forgiveness. We will begin by singing again the Kyrie, translated simply, Lord, have mercy. Then we will read the words of confession together in unison and then repeat the Kyrie. Let us sing first.
together. God of the foolish cross, you are not the savior we expect. Your power does not look like the power we want our God to demonstrate. Your wisdom makes no sense to us. We are happy to join the crowd, waving branches, but not so sure we want to follow you into the temple courts, into the upper room, into the Garden of Gethsemane, to the foot of the cross. Forgive our false assumptions, clarify our clouded vision, free us to relax into the foolishness of your love and grace. Mm -hmm. 